Father, we thank you for the wonder of your loving heart. And we ask that as we begin to consider and look at the life of your Son, that you would open our eyes to who you are. That you would transform us as we behold. That you would show us what a wonderful Savior we have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good evening. I'm excited to be with you all once again, and I'm excited about this particular series that the Lord has has for us in these coming weeks. We're going to be looking together at the emotions of our Lord and what they reveal about His heart, the heart of God. Now, how I was thinking about this, how a person reacts to circumstances can tell you a lot about a person. You can learn a lot about a person just by watching what they do. You can learn a lot about a person by listening to what they say. You can learn a whole lot about a person by watching how they react to circumstances. What makes them weep? What makes them laugh? What makes them angry? What makes them worried? And so we want to think in this session over the next seven weeks, we want to think about how does the Son of God, how does Jesus Christ react? What causes Him joy? What causes Him sadness? What makes Him angry? What makes Him astonished? What emotions arose within Jesus and what experiences and circumstances evoked those emotions within Him? And so that's where we're going over the next seven weeks. But before we can really dive in, next week we'll really get to dive in. We'll begin with thinking about the compassion of Christ. But before we go there, I really believe it's important to slow down and walk through some introductory matters. So first of all, our approach in this study, I want to just cover three things here. First of all, some guidelines. This is some guidelines that are going to guide us through our study. We're going to limit ourselves primarily to the Gospels. Uh, we may, I may mention some other verses, but primarily we'll be in the Gospels. Secondly, we're not going to ha- have time to do really a comprehensive study of every verse and passage that has to do with the emotions of Christ. So uh, it will be somewhat of a survey at times. Okay, so I'm just, this is my fine print at the bottom here. Um, also, we're going to be leaning primarily on the explicit, not the implicit. What do I mean by that? We're going to lean on those passages that explicitly mention Jesus as having an emotion. Okay, And I think there's safety there. There are really three types of passages in the Gospels. There are those passages that explicitly say, Jesus, filled with compassion, did so-and-so. Did, you know, or Jesus got angry and... X. But then there are those passages that where Jesus is described as displaying an ambiguous emotional response. This is a second type of passage. And these are passages, for instance, there's a passage where the Pharisees are opposing him, they're questioning him, and Jesus, his response to that is just to give a big sigh. <sighs> Says he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, we know that he had an emotional response, but it is somewhat of an ambiguous emotional response. Was he sad, grieved, frustrated, angry? We don't know 
Exactly. And so we have to tread more carefully. And then there are those passages, the third type of passage, where although an emotion is not explicitly mentioned, it is implicitly there. The most common example for this one is is the cleansing of the temple. It is the story that we think of when we think of the anger of Jesus. Right, he goes in and he turns the tables over and he's whipping people and he's clearing the whole area out. And yet every time that story is described, nowhere does it say he was angry. One place it says it speaks of his zeal, but nowhere does it actually speak of an emotion of anger. And so there are those passages, some of them are more clear, some of them are less clear, and we have to be, again, careful in those passages. So that's some of the guidelines um, for our study. Secondly, the format of our study. I'm going to be looking basically at three things. We want to define our terms because we're, we're, we're doing something sensitive here. We're talking about a person. Uh, we're not doing it behind his back because he's present with us. Right? <laughs> but we are talking about Jesus Christ. And we're talking about his emotions. I don't know how you would feel if someone was talking about your emotions and your emotional responses. But we want to be accurate with what we're saying. And so we're going to be leaning heavily on definitions, particularly the definitions of the Greek words behind our English words that convey an emotion. Does that make sense? So defining is going to be an important aspect. We're going to also be observing. So I want to define the words, but I also want to observe those particular events in the life of Jesus in which that particular emotion arose. We want to look at those events. What caused this emotion to rise up within the being of Christ? And then third, of course, we want to learn, right? We want to draw some some application. We want to learn some lessons. We want to learn who Christ is. And we want to learn how to respond. And that really leads to the goals in this study. I have three goals for our study. And the first one, you could say just one word, worship. Our goal is to worship. But worship is a response to seeing something. So I really want us to see by God's grace, God for who he really is. Jesus is God, right? Who is he? I want us to see him with with clarity. We want to behold the glory of God as revealed in Jesus Christ and stand in awe of him and respond with praise and thanksgiving at this revelation of God's heart. So the first is worship. I hope that is one of our goals. Secondly, I believe that one of our goals should be to change. So worship, but secondly, to change. That is, we want to be transformed into the image of Christ. right? We want to be more like Jesus. And Paul actually speaks of this in Corinthians, that we are changed, we are transformed by what? By beholding, right? And so this is a perfect way to be transformed, as we behold the living Christ as he walked upon this earth, as we think deeply about what kind of a person he was, uh, we can be transformed. We want our emotions to become more like his emotions. And that's what I trust will take place as we're in our times together. So we worship, we change. But the third word that I'm going to use here is run. Run. Because as we gaze upon the perfections of our Lord, and we look at ourselves and we see the need for change, 
we can become all too aware of our own need, of our own weaknesses, of our own sin, of our own inability. And in those moments, we need to run to Christ. We need to see that He is not only the one that we ought to imitate, but He is the one who alone can rescue us and deliver us. He is an all-sufficient Savior. And we can come to one who truly, as the King James Version puts it, He truly is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You believe that? That Jesus Christ is touched by the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses, our need. Why is he touched? Because he was tempted in every way, and yet without sin. And so as we remember this, we're encouraged to run to him for help in our time of need. We can run to him. And so I trust that these will be our responses to worship, to be transformed, to run to Christ. All right, that's it by way of introduction. Now, there's two things I want to do tonight in our time together. And I want us to think about emotions. And I want us to think about emotions from God's perspective. And then I want us to think about emotions from our human perspective. So we really are looking at two big ideas tonight. So the first has to do with God's emotions. Now, as soon as we speak of emotions and we speak of God we run into certain difficulties. And the first is the question that it might arise, is it, is it even right to think of God as having emotions? Is that even appropriate? Throughout church history, God's people have believed in a doctrine called the impassibility of God. The doctrine of impassibility. That's a big word, and most people hear that word and they think, oh, you're trying to tell me that God has no emotions. But that's not really what that word means. What it's really trying to get at is that God's emotions are different than our emotions. They're, they're, they're distinct. And then some people debate this whole issue of the impassibility of God. And I don't want to get mired in the debate. But I believe that we can all agree as to certain things, uh, regardless of the terms we use, there are certain points at which we can agree together regarding the emotions of God. And I want to present it this way. First of all, God is presented in the Word of God as a transcendent being. That is, He is a God that is far above us. He is absolutely sovereign. That is, He is in control of all things. He is immutable, which means He does not change. He is self-sufficient. You first years are start, are thinking about these things, right? He's self-sufficient, which means He has no needs outside of Himself. Right? He, he has no needs, not dependent on anyone. He is a God who isn't surprised in any way or forced to react in a certain way. This is the God that is revealed to us in Scripture. And you can see it in passages like Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or Malachi, for I the Lord do not change. Or Ephesians 1, God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. And I could put verse after verse after verse. Now, if we only focus on these types of verses that speak of the transcendence of our God, we might begin to think of God as being somewhat cold and distant and uncaring. 
But there's a whole nother package of verses and passages in the scripture that relate a whole nother side to God. And it describes, these passages describe God as a very personal being, an emotional being who, who interacts with and responds to people. So let me put some of these passages up. For instance, Hosea 11, 8 and 9. How can I give you up? This is God speaking, O Ephraim. How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. This is a whole other side of God, right? This is a God who is close, who cares, who feels, right? You see it in Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10. Jonah delivers his message. The Ninevites repent. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. God responding to human beings. And so it's important as we come and we think about God and emotions, it's important that we think carefully and that we avoid two extremes. On the, on the one hand, we must not think of God as uncaring and distant. Would you agree with me? He's not uncaring or distant. On the other hand, we must be very careful not to recreate God into our own image. And imagine God as reacting capriciously with human-like emotions. So how do we think accurately about God's emotions? First of all, we can say that God is an impassioned being. He is full of emotions. It's wrong to think of God as having no emotions or no concerns. God is not an impersonal being. God is not detached from his creation. God is not the Buddha with that stone face that has no care about anything. But God is a God, as you read him, through, you, you encounter him through the pages of Scripture, who is constantly responding with emotion, a God full of emotions. But as we say that, we have to very quickly say this second thing, that God's emotions are different than ours. They are distinct from our emotions. How are they distinct? That is what, what we're trying to do here is we have to preserve the creator-creature distinction. We are not God. God is not us. He is different than us. He is holy. How is how are God's emotions different? Well, first of all, they are chosen. They are chosen by God. G.I. Packer, in writing on this subject, writes this. This means simply that God's experiences do not come upon him as ours come upon us. His are foreknown, willed, and chosen by himself and are not involuntary surprises forced on him from outside apart from his own decision in the way that ours regularly are. You see, God does not suffer from mood swings like we do. He doesn't get up on the wrong side of bed, thankfully. <laughs> God is not a capricious God. He's not blindsided by his emotions. So God's emotions are chosen, and i fully aware that there's some mystery here 
We can say also that God's emotions are utterly steadfast. They are steadfast. That is, they are constant. They are firm. You can count on the same emotions every time. They are consistent with his nature, with who he is. Our emotions are not steadfast. We know that. Our emotions are capricious. They're all over the place. They're given to sudden and unaccountable changes. One day our child is acting up and we laugh in humor. Ha! Look at that antic. The very next day our child does the same thing and we get angry. <laughs> Stop doing that! Our, our emotions are unreliable. They are fickle. They are subject to change. We're easily surprised, caught off guard, impatient. But God's emotions are constant. They are steadfast. But in this series that we're thinking about, we're thinking particularly about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And we're thinking particularly about the emotions he displayed on the earth. And so this means that we need to think a little bit more about how does this work out in the person of Jesus Christ? And how does it relate to his dual nature? We're really getting into some hard stuff here, but we, we need to walk our way through some of this uh, before we, we dive into the study. This, is, this really brings us to the mystery of the Incarnation. What is the Incarnation? Grudem defines it as the event in which Jesus became a man. That event in which Jesus became a man in such a way that he possessed a fully human and a fully divine nature. He had both. Fully human and fully divine nature. Two natures, one person. And there's mystery here. There are questions about the incarnation that no theologian has ever been able to fully answer. There's just mystery when it comes to the idea of fully God, fully man. And so there are questions that often arise in a study like this. Questions, for instance, like, well, were Jesus' emotions on earth more like God's emotions or more like our human emotions? Wasn't Jesus surprised at times? Didn't he react to circumstances? Didn't he experience the ups and downs of life like we do? Should we attribute the emotions of Jesus to his divine nature? Or should we attribute the emotions of Jesus to his human nature? All sorts of very tricky, tricky questions. The last one, for instance, the question, should we attribute to his divine or human nature, has the implication that if we attribute Jesus' emotions to his human nature, then we can really dismiss them as not really being like God. Right? And so it gets tricky. But I believe these sorts of questions are unhelpful because they seek to divide Jesus into his two natures. And the Gospels never present Jesus in two natures. They present him as one person, one being. They do not present Jesus as schizophrenic or having a split, dis <laughs> a split personality disorder. You'll never read in the Gospels that the human Jesus did this, but then the divine Jesus went over here and did that. But it's always Jesus, the God-man, doing everything that he does. And so perhaps the more important question is this. Does Jesus' humanity veil 
or obstruct what we can learn about God? That's the real big question. Does his humanity hinder us from seeing God for who he is? And here we can answer this question with clarity and certainty. So let's go to some of these passages. John 1, 14, and we read, The Word became flesh, and it tabernacled among us. It dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to this earth, and we beheld His glory. A few verses later, we read, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. He's speaking of Jesus right there. Jesus is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Now the language here is strong language. It speaks of Jesus Christ as being in the bosom of the Father, which is language of the greatest proximity and intimacy. That is, there is no one closer to the Father than the Son. There is no one who knows the Father better than the Son. And then this beautiful phrase, the Son, Jesus, the begotten one, has explained the Father. He came to this earth to explain the Father to us. And of course, This classic passage at the end of John, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, it's enough. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you want to know what God is like? Study the Son. Look at the life of Jesus Christ. Study his life. To see the incarnate Son of God is to see the Father. Oh, for eyes to see the Son, that we might see him who is invisible. Isn't that amazing? That we can see him who is invisible by looking at the Son of God. And so what can we say about this? Jesus' emotions accurately display to us what God is like. Far from Jesus' humanity obstructing our vision, it makes possible our vision of God. It is the very humanity of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to see God for who He is in a way that we've never seen before. To see Jesus, through the pages of the Gospels, is to see the Father like He has never been revealed before. Not anywhere in the Old Testament is the Father revealed the way He is revealed through His Son in the Gospels. So when we read of Jesus' compassion towards the hurting, We're seeing God for who He is. When we see Jesus' steady opposition towards those who oppose Him, we're seeing God for who He is. When we see Him weep over Jerusalem, we're seeing God for who He is. These are glimpses 
into the very being of God. Now, one more caution regarding emotions and God. We need to keep a proper balance with other aspects of his being. By focusing on Jesus' emotions, I'm aware that I might communicate the idea that Jesus was a man who was dominated by his emotions. The reality is that the passages that speak of Jesus' emotions are fairly few when compared to all the Gospels. And so we need to be careful here, and I just want to say this at the very beginning, that it was always the will of God that controlled Jesus' decisions and actions in life. Jesus did not act based on his emotions. He had strong emotions, but it was always the will of God that directed his life. And so we need to be careful not to elevate emotions too highly. We can turn Jesus into such an emotional being that as B.B. Warfield writes in his paper, he scarcely commands our highest reverence. And we don't want to do that. On the other hand, we don't want to ignore these emotions that we find in Jesus Christ and make Jesus out to be a man without passions, a man who is stoic and cold and, and heartless and who cannot truly sympathize with us. And so by God's grace, we'll seek to navigate between these two extremes. So in summary here on emotions in God, we could say three things. God's emotional life is different from ours. And we can say amen. Thank you. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, they are different than ours. Secondly, the emotions that Jesus experienced through his divine human nature accurately display to us what God is like. That we can look at the sun, and as we look at the sun, we can say that's what God is like. He is a reflection of the Father. And then third, we just need to remember that emotions are not everything. Jesus was not a man dominated by his emotions. Although we're going to find out he did express his emotions in some very intense ways. I was telling my kids this. This is just an aside, just to give us a break. Right before I came over, when we, t when we express our emotions in strong ways, when we give vent to our emotions, we tend to also at the same time lose control of ourselves. Have you notice that? There, there seems to be this, when we give vent to emotions, we tend to lose self-control. Jesus was able to give vent to his emotion, give vent, he was able to express his emotions very intensely without ever losing self-control for a moment. All right. So here are a few points about the emotions in God and just we want to think rightly about God and his having emotions. But now I want us to, in a sense, look at this from a different angle and think about our own human emotions because we will be applying this to ourselves and we want to think about our emotions and the place they have in our own life. And so we want to shift our attention from God's emotions to, to our own and in so doing, I want to begin by thinking a little bit about an article 
that I read in the Gospel Coalition by a guy named Alex uh, Alasdair Groves. And he points out that as human beings, we tend towards two extremes when it comes to emotions. The first extreme is to stifle and suppress all emotions. And we see, you know, to, to see all emotions as p- weakness. We must not trust our emotions. We need to lean on our rational mind. You could call this the John Wayne approach to life. You know, suck it up. No big deal. Or as the British put it, keep a stiff upper lip. Or maybe you heard this or said this and when you in grade school. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And what we're trying to say or mean convey by that is this idea that I can't be hurt emotionally. Yeah, do whatever you want. You can't hurt me. I'm tough. I'm tough. You can't hurt me. And this mentality creeps into the church as well, where spiritual maturity is sometimes seen as the ability not to express emotions. For instance, we might argue that since God is in control, we really should never express grief or pain or sorrow. You know, your loved one is with the Lord. Why are you grieving? I've had people tell me things like that. And I think that that expresses an unhealthy lack of emotion, misunderstanding of emotion and sympathy, a lack of sympathy and compassion, right? But there's another extreme. So we can stifle emotions, or on the other extreme, we can react against the first extreme and raise emotions to such a high level, that uh, to such a place of prominence, that our emotions rule our life. And emotions become everything. Our emotions and feelings take over our will and mind and dominate our actions. In fact, emotions can become so dominant that we equate them with our will. What do I mean by that? When we begin to think that we can only act according to how we feel, when we forget that we have a capacity to choose or act against our emotions, we have swallowed up our will into our emotions. It's a dangerous place to be. Oprah Winfrey said this, follow your feelings. If it feels right, move forward. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Your feelings know the way. They are a sure guide to happiness. On the negative side, on the flip side, and you're seeing this, I think we're seeing this in our culture, it comes across this day, this way. Whatever you find difficult is a form of oppression. Whatever is difficult is not just difficult, it is oppressive. Whatever crosses your sense of well-being is not just unpleasant, it is a threat. This is to, you know, when emotions become everything, this is what happens. This focus on emotions also creeps into the church, does it not? And so you might be sitting with a believer, pleading with them to repent of an immoral relationship. Here's a friend, and they claim to be a Christian, but they're in an immoral relationship, and you are pleading with them to repent. And they respond, I I know what the Bible says, but this just feels right. This just feels right. Emotions becoming too much, right? Too great. 
or we can fall into this trap. Sunday morning worship service trying to engineer an emotional experience. But let me tell you, emotions by themselves are never an evidence that God is at work. Emotions by themselves are not an evidence that God is at work. So what is the purpose of our emotions? How should we think rightly about our human emotions? Let's just start at the beginning, at creation. It's a good place to start. God created human beings in his own image with the capacity for emotions. you believe that? That our capacity for emotions is part of our being created in the image of God, and it is a gift of God. Our emotions are a gift. That is what we're saying, is that there is nothing intrinsically or fundamentally wrong or evil about our emotions. If, if so, then all emotions are bad, right? And we should definitely be that first extreme, the John Wayne approach to life. Our capacity for emotions is a gift. But what is the purpose of our emotions? What are their purpose? Well, emotions are part of the control center of a human being. They're part of the control center. The Bible describes that control center as the heart. That's the language that the Bible uses. And the heart has traditionally been understood to be made up of three things. The mind, the will, and the emotions. Now, this doesn't just come out of the blue. It's because when you look at the, you do a word study of the word heart in the Bible, the first three occurrences of the word heart describe it as having to do with the mind, the will, and the emotions. It emphasizes these three different aspects in relationship, in relationship to the heart. And so the heart, these three make up the heart out of which flows all of our actions, good or bad. All of our actions flow out of our heart. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart. Watch over it with all diligence, because out of it flows the springs of life. This is what Jesus says. It's from the heart that all these things come out. All sin, all actions, all everything is flowing out of our hearts. Now, ideally... Our emotions were created to reflect God's emotions in such a way that we care about what he cares about and we hate what he hates. Our emotions were created by God to be a reflection of his emotions so that we care about what he cares about, right? Their purpose was to energize our actions in accord with the will of God to energize our actions in accord with the will of God. And so you might say something like this. Our emotions are given to us by God to support and strengthen our will and mind in doing what is right and pleasing to God. To energize us in doing what is right and pleasing to God. They're given that we might love God with our whole being. They're given that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's a wonderful gift. Robert Law, I'm going to be using him from time to time. He wrote a book on the emotions of Jesus. Good book. He writes, in the complex working of our nature, emotions has but one purpose, to move the will to action. 
And you're going to see this again and again and again in our study of Christ is whenever this emotion rises up within Christ, it moves him to action. It never just dead ends. When compassion wells up within him, he heals, he rescues, he delivers. It moves him to action. But we all know that when you turn to Genesis 3, something terrible happens. The fallenness of our of our emotions, the fallenness of our whole being. Adam and Eve disobey God. They rebel against God. And because of that, they plunge all of humanity into sin. And this means that because of the fall, every part of our being is affected by sin. We call this total depravity. And this means that our emotions have also been corrupted by sin. And just as we can sin with our thoughts and we can sin with our actions, we can also sin with our emotions now. In fact, we could say that because of our sin nature, we even have this inward tendency to sin with our emotions. You could say that the first sin was the elevation of the mind, will, and emotions above the Word of God. The first sin was the elevation of the mind, will, and emotions, the heart, the the person, the, heart, the core of a person's being to elevate himself above the Word of God. Which also means they remove themselves from under the authority of God. Does that make sense? And this is what caused this great collapse. We were created, you see, to live under God's good and kindly rule. That's how you were created. It's how I was created. We were created to live under God's authority. Our minds, our wills, our emotions, they only operate correctly when they're functioning under God's authority. It's the only time they work right. When they're not there, they totally mess up. It's only in submission to God's word that our hearts function as they were designed to function, resulting in righteousness and holiness and godly actions and feelings. All right, we're all awake. Because of our sin and rebellion then, against God, our emotions are broken. We can say that. They malfunction. They are defective like these speakers. They no longer accurately, or Facebook today, uh, um, they no longer accurately reflect God and His values. They now reflect the selfish bent of our own hearts. The selfish bent of our own hearts, so we worry over our future. We rejoice over our advancement and another person's failure. We get angry when someone breaks our rules. We feel sorry for ourselves when we're caught. And our emotions are all distorted. They're all messed up. They're all broken. And so we might ask ourselves, is there hope? Is there hope? Well, yes, there's hope. There's hope in Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth in order to restore all things, to reconcile all things to himself. He came to make it possible for you 
and for me to be reconciled to God. And he invites us to repent and come back under God's righteous, good, kindly rule. That's what he invites us to do. This this is a message Jesus gave. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. God's rule has arrived. Come under it. Repent. Stop going your own way and come under God's righteous rule. You see, in Christ, it's possible to recover more and more of God's image as we yield ourselves to God. The Bible calls this sanctification. It is a process in which we're transformed more and more into the people that God created us to be, a people who reflect His image. And part of that transformation process is the restoring of our emotions to their proper function in our lives. That's part of sanctification. Part of becoming like Christ, part of sanctification, is your emotions begin to function the way they ought to in your life. And so, we learn to express godly sorrow when we have broken God's law and grieved His heart. We learn to rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We learn to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We learn to feel compassion for those who are lost. We learn how to be human once again. You see, God does not intend that we should suppress our emotions, but neither does he want us to be controlled by our emotions. There's this balance. The Bible never says, do as you feel. The Bible does sometimes command you to feel a certain way. Rejoice. So how can we learn to express our emotions in a balanced way that glorifies God, that reflects his image? How can we learn this? Well, there's probably different ways we can learn this, but one of the ways we can learn is by looking at Christ and looking at the ways he displayed this whole range of emotions. What what emotions does he display? And when does he express these emotions? And what can we learn from him? So I would ask you tonight, where are you? Where are you tonight? Have you turned from going your own way and submitted yourself to God's good and kindly rule? That's a fundamental question. Because until we have submitted ourselves to God, unless we've come back under His authority, we're really not going to learn anything in this session, in these sessions. It's not possible. That's the first step. We come under His authority and then we can begin to learn. And then we can be a disciple and we can be a student and learn and grow and be transformed. So where are you? If we're going to learn from Christ, we have to begin at the beginning. We have to come under God's righteous rule. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. And we thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself to us. Thank you for revealing yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see his glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.